Welcome to the Aurora Cornerstone Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We hope today's message is an encouragement to you. I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles, please, with me this morning. We're going to turn to the book of... There's a couple of themes, one being James, the other being Revelation. Thank you, Daniel. And invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to that. So, James chapter 1, and we're going to go to Revelation chapter 3. As I do with my youth on Thursday, encourage, bring your Bibles. And if you can, it gives you opportunity to mark, to put in the margins, to make notes on. And uh, so, encourage you to do that. And then we have a, actually have a text this morning. But this is our ongoing two-verse two theme that we are in, and it's learning, it's taking the lessons learned for good and for the bad of what it comes when it is, when it comes to him, God offering us the crown of life. There's lessons to be learned, and there's lessons to be learned from the first three kings of Israel. So we pick it up in James chapter 1 verse 12, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Jesus would say in Revelation 3, he would say, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. And today's text is found in Acts chapter 13. In Acts chapter 13, we have talked of Saul, who wore the crown, but who lost the crown. And I think one of the saddest texts around the life of Saul is the text when the Amalekite took his crown from him. He lost his crown. Remember it said here uh, that you will receive a crown of life, and then Jesus says, don't let anyone take, don't let anything take your crown. It was taken from Saul. David, we're talking of the life of David, and so in Acts 13, 22, it says, After removing Saul, Samuel the prophet, made David their king. In other words, he gave David the crown. God testified concerning David, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. I have found a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him. Everything. I want you to note the part, he will do everything. We're going to talk about that today. This is huge. He's going to do everything. He does everything I want. Uh, so we're, we're, we're into the, this is part, uh, let me see, part six of the summer series. The summer series on the crown. We're studying three successive kings how they got the crown, how their crown was threatened, how you can lose your crown. It's a life, it's the picture of our lives. We can learn from them. There's so much about this. Uh, I've been enjoying it and trust that if you've jumped right in today, maybe for the first time, feel free to go on our website, auroracornerstone.ca. You can go back, podcast of the previous messages of Saul. We're now into David. and We're coming close to the halfway point in David. And then eventually we'll go to David's son, Solomon, 
who would, who would struggle with the crown in major ways. But David, let's, I, I like David. I want to stay on David for a while. If you had my, my choice, I would just stay on David and never leave David. I really uh, look up to and admire the example of David in so many ways. And there's lessons. Uh, he was not perfect by any stretch. He did have a heart after the Father, though. That's what got him through. He had a heart that would be quick to repent. He didn't become, it's so easy to become arrogant and pride-filled, David refused to do that. He had a pliable, moldable heart. So as we approach this halfway point, I want to give a a bit of a panoramic view right here uh, today as we study the life of David. David, uh, now if you don't know much about the Bible stories, I encourage you this week to go back and read, uh, get in your Bible and read 1 Samuel, it's the book of 1 Samuel, and then read 2 Samuel. It'll take you through what we're talking about here in in much more detail, in much better detail. I'm highlighting some areas, but if you're not familiar with these stories, uh, that's no problem. Just go back and read 1 Samuel, read 2 Samuel. Uh, It'll help you to know some of the things we're about to talk about in the days ahead as well. As we approach kind of the halfway point in our study with David, David uh, is a very interesting character. When he was a teenager, and I'm intrigued with the teenagers that uh, went through the waters of baptism. Wasn't that wonderful? Uh, I just rejoice, and way to go, guys. Our prayers are with you. Uh, It's uh, God's hand on your life. I was 17 years old when when I... um, made a rededication of my life back to the Lord. I had talked about and lived and prayed the prayer, sinner's prayer. I believe I was follower, a follower of Jesus, but I wasn't fully committed until I was 17. And when I was 17, I came to the place I could even, I could continue to follow my mom and dad who were followers of Jesus and just continue that on kind of the coattail of mom and dad, but kind of do my own thing. And I was at that point. Or if he was who he said he was, and if the Bible truly is the written word of God, I needed to make some serious life changes. At the age of 17, I dug in, I studied, I called out. It was, I wasn't going to walk away from God. It was whether or not I was going to commit myself to him. Fully surrender, the last song. And after I did personal study at the age of 17, something I'd never studied so hard in all my life, as I began to read, are you who you say you are? I picked up materials, I began to search deep, and I became convinced he is the Son of God. He is worthy of full surrender. And if I fully follow him, it means a number of things have got to change. I did that, and I kid you not, I am not looking back. It was 17 years of age. I made that full commitment. He proved himself to me. He proved himself in a situation that was undeniable. And I committed my life, fully surrendered for the rest of my life to you. I didn't plan to become a pastor at that time. It was the farthest thing from my mind. Uh, I had some other aspirations, and God began to turn and weave and roadblock things in my life. I thought I was going in one direction. He roadblocked it, roadblocked it, roadblocked it. I kept turning, trying to find the direction. Something opened up, and then eventually I found myself, truly found myself at Bible college. Planned to go a year. Good to get a good year of Bible training, right? And then get back on track with where I was going to go. And then God had planned the second year. My second year of Bible college, I was 19 years old. 
I was gloriously filled with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Something I sought for for five years. And in that moment, in that moment, in that moment, God says, I mark you for life as a follower of Jesus. And I kind of looked at him and said, God, you, what have you got to work with? I mean, <laughs> there's a lot of people I look around. You got a lot to work with, but not me. Uh, you know, there was a lot of things I did not want to do. Um, you ever notice, be careful when you say to God, I'll never do this. Just be careful. Just hold back on some of those, right? I think God has a sense of humor. I have no mistake he has a sense of humor. I can hear the echoes of heaven, him chuckling, going, we'll see about that. And I'm glad because I really didn't have the foggiest. So I just rejoice with our youth. I believe in our kids. Um, and I believe in, the, in this next generation coming up to be the generation to see all-out revival around the world. Um, I'm excited about it. Just really excited about it. Uh, so, sorry, kind of got off topic there. Okay, David is 17, so it's not totally off topic. So when he was 17, God, God fashioned and formed him in isolation. He was the forgotten son. When the lineup came before prophet Samuel to see who was going to be anointed the next king, David wasn't even a consideration. He was the forgotten son out in the fields keeping watch over the flock. And God was fashioning David in those years. I have a whole message on that. A few messages ago, a couple messages back, how God formed him in isolation. God does that in all of us in those difficulties. He forming you uniquely for something. And at the age of 17, really was his coming out. He was anointed king by Samuel. And then he was told to go back to the fields. So back to the fields. He, you know, anointed king, but back to the fields. It just doesn't seem right. You know, he should be going and getting fitted for his robe and getting fitted for the crown and checking to see if the throne is the right size and all that stuff and who's going to serve him. But back to the fields he went. He was faithful at what he did. That's why God saw kingship in him. David would then rise up when that battle took place with the Philistines. And we all know the battle of, I think it's in chapter 17 of, uh, or is it chapter 13 of, somewhere in there in 1 Samuel, where David fights Goliath. And he's about 17 years of age. He's just a teenager. And he takes down the big guy. Uh, he immediately goes from the bottom to the top in one day, in, in a few minutes. Uh, people are singing his praises. Everybody in Israel knows the name David. David is a byword. It's a word that is sung on. And everybody wants to be like David. Don't want to be like Saul. They want to be like David, he's just 17. How do you handle that kind of stuff at 17 years of age? And I'm going to suggest you can't. You just can't. So God, last week we talked, God would knock out five things out from underneath David to get him ready. Five things, boom, 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 one after the other. He began to pull these from David's life to get him preparation from the age of 17 to the age of 30. He had to get him ready because at 30, at 30, he would actually take the throne. Saul would die, he would be killed in battle, or he would take his life in battle. He would die, and David would be crowned. These years from 17 to 30 were the most difficult years in David's life. He writes a number of the Psalms, are David's words, when you read of a number of them, and they are the Psalms of David running from Saul in the formation from the age of 17 to the age of 30. So this is all relevant because we're talking of David. 
We're talking about how do I wear the crown? We've all been given the crown of life, those in Christ. How do I keep it? Uh, David would, um, he would live to about the age of 70-ish. And, uh, but there was a number of problems began to take place uh, on the throne. I want to talk about the things, those things here today. Began with his family. So we're going to talk about the first part, largely his family. A question here for you. Uh, do you know how many children David had? Now, we can probably name some of them. Um, David had more than 21 children. He had a big family. More than 21 children. 20 sons, one daughter. And uh, we don't suppose we've got them all. We don't know the names of the rest. Those are simply the names we have of David's children. Um, you're thinking, poor wife. <laughs> okay, so don't worry about that. He, he had a lot of wives. Now, here's... That was the problem. Polygamy was not endorsed by God. It was not his first plan. David was, was stumbling in these years. And uh, so um, I'm just going to throw up a chart here. I've, I put some together to try to help us, and I'm not going to spend much time. Can we throw that chart up of David's kids? Okay, so this is from, uh, is there one be Oh, yeah, this is at 30 to 37 years of age. So you kind of see down through the chart here, and there's appropriate scriptures. You can find these in these texts. Look at these wives. Uh, I'm not going to name them all. Of, of particular interest, you will know Abigail in there because a bit more is talked about Abigail. Um, uh, Mecca, or Mecca because she has Absalom and Tamar, and they, they're talked about in scripture. Uh, Haggath, uh, Adonijah, it's talked a bit about. Um, and Michael. I see the wife, Michael, that was Saul's daughter, uh, but she was barren, never had any children, so you don't have any children on that side. We go to then from David 37, let's go from ages 37 to 70, do we have that one? And uh, you see a couple of wives here, uh, Bathsheba, proper pronunciation actually, Bathshua, Bathshua, and then you have un a bunch of unnamed wives, we just aren't named, but we know the names of the kids. And there's a bunch of names of kids, and really none of them stand out in that group. Uh, from Bathsheba, of course, we have Solomon, or another name, Jedediah, for Solomon. So those are the big family, big family. The total size of his immediate family, 20 sons, one daughter, excluding concubines and their offspring. Now keep this in mind, because this enormous family is an important issue later in life especially when it comes to the time of his adulterous relationship with Bathsheba or Bathsheba. Becomes a problem. I'm going to talk about that on another day. That deserves a bit of attention all of itself. Blessings would begin to flow in David's life. The crown is on his head. He's king. God is blessing him. It is God's plan. Territorially, David in his lifetime would expand the boundaries of Israel when he took over Israel with 6,000 square miles. By the time David died, Israel was 60,000 square miles. He expanded the kingdom, massive kingdom in David's day. What a blessing from God. Incredible. David was remarkable. But he was very human. In fact, he had, I'm going to count three major failures 
I'm going to touch on them because the day's moving on, but I'll touch on them quickly. We need to grab these. I give them to you. Again, a QR code if you want the notes. You can write these down. Here they are. Three heartbreaking disappointments in this period of his early crowning. Number one, he became so involved in public pursuits that he lost control of his family. Too many wives, too many children, too many this and that. And there would bring a rebelliousness in his heart. And his heart would break. An example of this can be found in 1 Kings chapter 1. We'll pick this up in verse 5. Now Adonijah, whose mother was Haggith, put himself forward and said, I will be king. So he got chariots and horses ready with 50 men to run ahead of him. His father had, note this part, his father had never, never interfered with him by asking, why do you behave the way you do? He was very handsome when he was born next to Absalom. Absalom was very handsome too. He had a good looking bunch of kids there. Note the part here, the part, the last part. His father never interfered with him. If you have your Bibles out, mark that. I'd be, mark that. His father never interfered with him by asking, why do you behave the way you do? He never did it. It literally means, in the literal translations, David never pained him. Sometimes you have to pain our children. Meaning he failed to properly discipline his sons when they needed some disciplining. He was absent. And that's on you, Dad. That's on you. He would lose control of his family multiple times. Largely because he was so involved in public interests and pursuits he would lose control of his own children. It's not worth it when that happens. Secondly, David indulged himself in extravagant extremes of passion. Second disappointment. He indulged himself in extravagant extremes of passion. David was known to do whatever he did, he did with all his heart. Nothing wrong with that. It's called zeal. It's called passion. I love zeal and passion. His appetites, though, led to inappropriate seasons of leisure that led to sin. More about that maybe next week. But the second thing is he indulged himself at extravagant extremes of passion. The third one is David's third failure was that he became a victim of self-sufficiency and pride. In other words, he began to believe his own track record. This is where he would move into the place, and again, a whole sermon could be on this, where he took a census of his army. I mean, he did have 60,000 square miles. He had conquered much. He had the biggest army going, and he wanted to boast of its size because he was responsible. Although God forbade that any man or king would ever do this. God forbade the taking a number of your army because it was all about pride. And David did it. He knew better. It was the ultimate of pride, and many died because of David's arrogance and pride. Again, third thing, he became a victim of self-sufficiency and pride. Now, I want to talk about another part of pride. 2 Samuel chapter 6, and I'm actually going to read this. 2 Samuel chapter 6. I'm going to pick it up in verse 1. David again brought together all the able men, young men of Israel, 30,000. Verse 2. 
He and all his men went to Baal in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim of the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ao, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ao, who was walking in front of it, David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord. Man, he's a man of zeal and passion. With cassinets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. Verse 6. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down. He died there beside the ark of God. Now, there's a full story. don't have time to read the whole story. But the ark, let's just talk about the ark for a moment. What's the ark? The ark is a chest made of wood that is gold-plated in all sides. The ark in that day represented God's presence. So where the ark was, God was saying, there my presence is with you. So from the earliest of times in the inception of a people, the tribes... God would establish the ark to be central and the tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel, would surround the ark. The ark was central and in detail, God gave detailed plans for the building of what was called the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a dwelling place where God would abide among his people. So in the tabernacle, detail was given on the badger walls that it was made of, how far apart The poles were placed, how high they were, the dimensions, where it was placed, which side each tribe was to be on the the north or south or east or west of the tabernacle, of the gates, the details, the color, to every part of the furnishings of the tabernacle, starting with the brazen altar and going to the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark. The ark, what we're talking about. And everything was in detail to get there. Chapter after chapter after chapter. It's mundane. Most of us skip over it. And that's okay. You don't have to feel guilty about that. (laughs) Because it's just a lot of detail. You know, we're kind of thinking, well, what does that have to do with, you know, everyday life? Because it's just a lot of Hebrew detail that God gave to them and they were to follow. Even the priest and the ephod and their garments and how they wore it and how they prepared themselves for sacrifice, how the sacrifice was to be made, how often everything was in detail. Oh, God, why so many details? I'm not a... Lori and I, we talk about this all the time. Lori's a fairly detail-oriented person. She wants to know the details. Me, not so much. I'm kind of your bottom line guy. Quickly get to the bottom line. What are you trying to say? Okay, now some of you are smiling because you know people like that and they drive you nuts, don't they? Because they have no detail in their life. And those of us who are the bottom line people, those with detail, we just like, okay, you talk. Let me know when to come back when you're in the bottom line. And, and it's a bit of a rub, isn't it? <laughs> and I don't think, I think we need each other. I thank God that Lori's detailed. And I don't know if she ever thanks God for, for my bottom line. I can't speak for that. Um, so God had a lot of detail. So the reason I say that is 
In this story, they had the Ark of the Covenant. Inside the Ark, again, it represents God's presence, was the golden jar containing the manna from the wilderness, Aaron's ancient rod, and the Ten Commandments. To be sure, the furniture is absolutely holy. What's in the Ark is holy. And it was to be set apart for God. So careful was God with his instructions that he had instructions even how it was to be carried, how it was to be moved. This is where David gets into trouble here. I say all that because I'm going somewhere. David's the kind of guy, he's a visionary, he's a decision maker, he's a shaker, he's a mover. When he gets an idea, he runs with full abandonment towards that idea. So when he had the idea, and it was a God idea, when he had the idea of bringing the Ark of the Covenant into the holy city of Jerusalem, good idea. This was of God. He immediately set the plan in motion to get the Ark there. The problem was, in his zeal and passion, he didn't seek God's ways. There's something about zeal and there's something about passion and there's something about the knowledge and the will of God and they got to be married together. One without the other is absolute danger and a sin. And a sin. And it was in David's life. David hadn't done his homework. He just wanted to get the ark from here to there. How difficult can that be? So they put the ark on a cart led by some oxen, and they began the process to get it there. Today, we would have put it on the back and maybe rented a U-Haul. But he was getting it to where it needed to go, and it did need to go to Jerusalem. So he began to get it towards that end. This is where the problem, they were moving, the ground's unstable, the ark tips, oozes walking beside, he instinctively reaches out to steady it, boom, he's struck dead, he dies, stop the parade, everything stops, and David is extremely upset, not necessarily with God. It starts vertical, then it turns inward. And don't think, they, they say depression is anger turned inward. Then he became angry with himself. Oh, you're so stupid, David. What were you doing? You just killed somebody that's dear to you. And he goes into this period of time, what he should have done before. Somebody just died. So they stop the train. The ark goes into the house of Abinadab. Everything stops because somebody got struck down. He didn't take time to find out God's ways. There's my point. He didn't take time to find out God's ways. We can be like that, especially in a society that's demanding you to move quickly. And the things that we take, we can take for granted. First Chronicles chapter 15 of the same story, we read the same story there. Three months would pass and David wondered why the homestead of Abinadab is being blessed beyond measure. Because he has the ark in his home. And it was meant to be in the house of the Lord, to be in Jerusalem. What David didn't take time to see the first time was that he began to discover the ark actually had these little ringlets on it, and those ringlets were there for a reason. <laughs> You're to put poles in those ringlets. And those poles, when they go in the ringlets, they are to be, the reason there's poles in the ringlets is those poles are to go on the shoulders of the people who carry the ark. 
And not just any shoulder, they go on the shoulder of people, the tribe of the Levites. And not just any Levite, it's those that have been ceremonially cleansed to carry it. But it's a whole lot easier just to put the ark on a cart and send it on its way. I mean, that's the Canadian way. Get her done. Get her done. Right? Wrong. Let me tell you something. If the Lord cared enough to write it out in detail and to preserve it for all these years, then he cares enough about the details to have you and me pull off what he wants his way. The Bible is not there to be a guidance. The Bible is there to understand God's will. And if I just use it as a general guide, I will miss the details. And in missing the details, listen, missing the details, you can lose your crown. There's some details that we can't compromise on. And today it's so easy to compromise. We begin to dilute it. We begin to come up with our ideas. I'm reading it this way. And we don't take it God's way. And that becomes the problem. And that's what David now does. David comes back to where he should have been. We read in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 13. It says, And so it was that when the bearers of the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, now remember, poles on the shoulders of the Levites who've been sanctified for the task. When they'd gone six paces, he offered an ox and a fatling, and he continued to do it all the way to Jerusalem. Picture it, if you would. Now they got the ark, not on a cart this time. They've got it on the shoulders of these men. Let's start, guys. David's counting them. One, two paces, three paces, four paces, five paces, six paces. Stop! Okay, somebody got a light? Let's light. Let's build an altar. Let's worship. That's what they did. They worshiped. Let's go again. One pace, two pace, three pace, four pace, five. Don't think that took a long time to get to Jerusalem. Let's stop. Let's do an altar. Let's worship the Lord. Over and over. David was real careful the next time. Beloved, we don't want to fool around and fiddle around with God's details. He has details for a reason. Some people say, I don't need doctrine. Actually, you do need doctrine. Now, when we put our opinion in some of the practices, then that can be interpretation. But what there's doctrine, and there's fundamentals that we must follow the fundamentals they're there for a reason. And when we compromise that, we compromise the heart of the Father, the crown slips. We saw it in the life of David. And when they finally get to Jerusalem, David is so excited. He is dancing up a storm. He is so hot, he's taken off his kingly tunic. He's just dancing and worshiping the Lord. Why? Why? Because when you are in total obedience to God, there, there is freedom. There is the freedom. My message title is called Absolute Obedience. Absolute Obedience. And it's there that we find freedom. His first wife, when David is dancing up a storm on the outskirts of Jerusalem, Micah, who is the daughter of Saul, she ridicules him. And because of it, she would remain barren for the rest of her life. Which is an incredible disgrace for an Israeli woman. The point is this. 
when you're really free, the people who are not so free will have trouble with you being free. We think freedom is getting ahead and getting things done. Get her done. But freedom is when you are in absolute obedience to the will and ways of God, there is freedom. David discovered. He thought by getting it there quickly was going to be the best route. He discovered poles on the shoulder of the Levite set aside, six paces, stop, worship God. By the time he gets to Jerusalem, the place was on fire for God. Beloved, there's freedom. When we live in absolute obedience to God. When God is dealing with things in your life or you are ignoring things for the purpose of it doesn't really matter. It does. It does matter. And when you come back to those things, you're saying, but, but I feel, but it's too much restraint. There's, there's too many demands that God is placing on me. Let me suggest, if you learn from the life of David and his crown, no, quite to the contrary. If you want true freedom, live in absolute obedience to God. And you will have true freedom. There will be freedom that will be ecstatic. You will dance with freedom. You will dance before the Lord. I think the reason often the dance has been taken away from the body of Christ is we're not walking in true freedom. We're walking in a purported freedom, ours. So I want to conclude with these thoughts. Just a couple and we'll close. Here it is. Number one, the better you know where you stand with the Lord, the freer you can be. Get to know God's will. Dig back into his word. Get into the teachings. Don't nibble at it. Don't a little bit here, a little bit there, a little devo here when you got a bit of spare time. Dig back in. Learn his ways. You'll discover freedom there. Only then can you experience real freedom. And secondly, the freer you are before the Lord, the more confident you will become. When you know where you stand, when you are walking in his ways, there is real security. You know who you are in Christ. If you wonder what God's will, you're back and forth, tossed to and fro, you don't have to be. You don't have to be. Some of you here this morning, you might be bound up in carnal, fleshly, something or other. You don't have to be. It's not God's way. Where whom the Son sets free is free indeed. That's why I want to share this on the work perfectly to, on the day of baptism. Because we were saying, did you note every, every one of the eight candidates, I said, today do you choose to depart from the ways of sin? Now, you can't do that in your own flesh. You do that with the strength and the anointing of God. But he will help you. David had to learn this. But if you make that decision, if you make that decision, then you learn what that is. You dig in. Just don't take somebody else. We'll say, well, they'd get away with it. Well, who cares? You concern yourself with what God's speaking to your situation, your heart. And then you align your life up with him. You start compromising that there's not true freedom in your life and there will not be the blessing that goes to the next generation. The freer you are before the Lord, the more confident you will become. If it's important to God, it ought to be important to you and me. We need to get to the place where we love to be obedient to him. God, absolute obedience. Pay attention to the things God considers important. And in one word, obey. There's an old song he used to sing. It was an old hymn. It said, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey.
Thanks for listening to the Aurora Cornerstone podcast. Remember to subscribe. For more information about our church and our ministries, visit auroracornerstone.ca.